Let's consider God's word together from 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, and this morning I'll be reading verses 6 through 9. This is God's holy and inerrant word. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pause and pray for the Lord to give guidance. Lord, this is your word. It is more precious to us than gold. May we receive of its riches this morning. Help me not to in any way obstruct or dilute the treasure that is in your word. But Lord, especially for anyone here this morning that is suffering, and we all suffer to one degree or another, we pray that we might find comfort and strength and courage as a result of studying your word together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Oxymoron. Remember that word from sixth grade English class? Oxymoron. It's a funny word. And it's a funny rhetorical device. You remember what it means. An oxymoron is when you take two seemingly contradictory words or phrases and you put them together in the same thought in order to make a deeper point or to make a bigger effect. For example, deafening silence. That's an oxymoron. Two contradictory ideas that when you put them together communicate something more powerful. A deafening silence. Or alone in a crowd. That's a phrase that we would call an oxymoron. Expect the unexpected. Controlled chaos. Accidentally on purpose. All these are oxymorons. Sometimes oxymorons are jokes. Civil engineer. No, sorry. I I know there's a lot of engineers around here. (laughs) Sorry about that. Government organization. Microsoft Works. You know, these are oxymorons, contradictory ideas that you put them together and you get something new. Well, there is an oxymoron that we're familiar with that Peter, I think, would have liked a lot. It's the the oxymoron that says this, sweet sorrow. Sweet sorrow. Or as Peter would put it, as we see in the text today, joyful grief. Joyful grief is an oxymoron, but it's a powerful truth. And that's what Peter's pointing to here in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though you have been grieved by various trials. He's not saying you were grieving in the past, but now you're rejoicing. He's saying that as Christians we understand what it means to rejoice while we grieve. 
It's a uniquely Christian experience that Peter would call joyful grief. He's only reflecting what our Lord and Savior Jesus said in John 16. Jesus said to his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Did you catch the oxymoron that Jesus is referring to there? Peaceful tribulation. Peaceful tribulation. Agony and ecstasy. Joyful grief. Peter wants to impress upon us in this passage that that's the normal state for a believer in this fallen world while we continue as sinners under the sanctifying grace of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, he says over in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Do you hear what he's saying? When you go through fiery trials, don't be surprised. Don't think, wow, this is strange. Isn't that how we react, though? When trials and tribulations and difficulties and sufferings and pains hit, we act like, oh, how could this happen to me? What's going on here? But Peter wants to impress upon us that we are to expect this. Because we know that we're sinners living in a fallen world. This is not strange. It's really normal. That doesn't mean that suffering has to be continuous, although to some degree it is, isn't it? But however occasional suffering or the degree of suffering might be, it is to be understood as normal. And if life is easy and life is prosperous, and life is absolutely calm and peaceful, understand that that's what's strange in this world. That's not the norm. Matter of fact, Peter speaks of the grief of various trials. And I think he intentionally is trying to say any kind of suffering. When we think of suffering, we tend to think of our sore back or our sore knee or our headache or our battle with cancer or our battle with with some kind of physical ailment. But Peter wants to impress upon us, he's talking about all kinds of suffering. And so there may be people here this morning who are suffering with marriage difficulties. Or maybe you've lost your job. Or maybe you've got a rebellious child. Or maybe a friend has betrayed you. Or maybe you're just beaten down by all the politics at work. Maybe you're addicted to something. Maybe you're depressed. All of these things fall under the umbrella of what Peter says, various trials. Many different kinds of trials. Understand that not only is this normal, but he calls upon us to grieve joyfully in the midst of them. Grieve joyfully. Particularly, he's talking about persecution, we're going to find out as we continue our studies through 1 Peter. He's particularly talking about the suffering and trials that come because the world is hostile to the Lord and Savior that we love and serve. Understand that that's normal. And if you know Christ, then you are able to joyfully grieve in the midst of those sufferings. Peter here points to five different reasons that we are able to joyfully grieve when we're suffering. Five deeper truths. Five foundational statements of faith that enable us to joyfully grieve when we suffer. Things that are unmovable when everything else in our life seems to be shaken and moved around. 
And these five deeper truths are the source. They're the deeper river. They're the source of that joy that comes to the believer in the midst of trial. The first truth that he points to is that Jesus is risen. As we are preparing to celebrate the resurrection in a few weeks, he points to that as one of those five foundational truths that enable us to joyfully grieve in the midst of suffering. Jesus is risen. I see this in verse 6 because he says, in this you rejoice. We're jumping into into Peter's uh, mid-thought here. You know, in this you rejoice. What's he referring to? He's referring to what we looked at last week. Back in verses 3 through 5, let me just remind you. According to his great mercy, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, that you have been born again to a salvation that's kept by God in heaven for you, and it's all based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he is raised from the dead, you are saved, and you are an heir of God's eternal kingdom. In this you rejoice while you suffer. Do you ever notice that joy and happiness look the same on the surface. And sometimes that's a false distinction between joy and happiness, but you know what I mean. You know, you could see people, you could see somebody walking down the street with a big smile on their face, with a little dance on their step, and it might just be because they just got paid or because their girlfriend just told them they loved them. There could be a lot of reasons why somebody's happy. And somebody who's really happy and somebody who's really joyful in the Lord, from a distance... Or even just for a short period of time, you can't tell the difference. What, what's the source of that? Where is it coming from? It's kind of like if you were to go to the harbor and you were to see two boats. You know, the harbor, if the water were crystal clear and calm and there's no waves whatsoever, and you saw two boats on the surface of the water, it could be that one of those boats has a very strong chain connected to a very heavy anchor hooked to something very solid at the bottom of the harbor, and the other one could have no chain or anchor at all. You wouldn't know it just by looking at the two boats floating on a calm and peaceful harbor. But what if a storm hits that harbor? What's going to happen? The boat that's anchored is going to stay firm. The other one's going to get broken on the rocks. And that's what people's lives are like. You know, when things are easy, when circumstances are easy and life is good, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between people who are just happy with their circumstances and people that are joyful in the Lord. But when the storms hit, when the difficulties come, when the trials come, that's when you find out who has the anchor, who has the deeper source, because the joy doesn't go away, because it's not based in the circumstances. Our joy is not in our circumstances, no matter how good or bad they may be. It's based in God's saving work in Jesus Christ, which is proven because he is raised from the dead. Our joy is in our salvation. You need to know that every day. It's not in your circumstances. It's in our salvation. Remember when David was suffering with grief that was a result of his own sin, his sin of adultery, his sin of murder. And he was suffering, miserable. His sin had led to the death of his baby boy. And he's suffering. And in Psalm 51, he writes a psalm of confession of sin. 
And he cries out to God and listen to what he says. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't ask for his baby boy to be raised from the dead so that he can be happy again. He doesn't ask that the consequences of his sin be taken away so that he can be happy again. He asks to be restored to the joy of his salvation because that's the source of his joy. And that's how we need to pray when we suffer. Lord, restore to me. Whether we're suffering because of our sin or suffering because of somebody else's sin or just suffering because we live in a fallen sinful world, we need to pray every day, Lord, restore to me, restore me to the joy of my salvation. Jesus is risen from the dead. The second foundational truth that Peter points to is that life is short. He says, in this In your salvation, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved with various kinds of trials. Now He's he's talking to everybody with whatever kind of trial you're going through. He says you're suffering for a little while. How can he say that in a blanket statement? Somebody, Somebody might be just having the flu for the afternoon and somebody might be having a lifelong disability. How can he say that everyone is suffering only for a little while? Well, he's comparing the time of our suffering to God's perspective. He's comparing our lifetime to eternity. He says this again over in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see... Living our daily lives in the grind of our work and our family and our neighborhoods, we get caught up in earth time. But when we're suffering, we badly need to be reminded of God's perspective on time. No matter how long we suffer, even if we begin to suffer the day we're born and we don't stop suffering until the day we die, what is that 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, what is that in comparison to eternity? God's plan for us is based in eternity, not in our lifetime. And that's why we have to keep coming back to the Word of God. That's why we gather on Sunday morning. That's why we gather in our small groups. That's why we study the Word ourselves every day, because we need to keep coming back to the Word of God to reconfigure our sense of time. To not count time with our watch, but to count time by the promises of God's Word. What does the nurse always say just before she sticks that big long needle on your arm? She'll say, this is, this is going to pinch for a little bit. It's going to sting for a moment. Why does she say that every time? Because she knows that we handle suffering much better when we know it's temporary, when we know it's just for a moment. I mean, what if she said, this is going to sting for two weeks? This is going to sting for a month. This is going to sting for ten years. Oh, you would not be quite so welcoming of her of our actions, would you? From God's perspective, our suffering is for a little while. And the more we gain His perspective, the more we're able to joyfully grieve while we suffer. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
our light momentary affliction. And he applies that label to everything we go through. Again, that's God's perspective. Thirdly, the third foundational statement of faith that Peter points us to here in this passage is that God is in control. God is in control. He says, you rejoice though now for a little while, or though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Think about that. Why do you throw that in there? If necessary. Do you realize the implications of throwing that little phrase in there? He's saying, if you're suffering right now, no matter what you're going through, it's necessary. It's necessary. From whose perspective? From the world's perspective? No. From your perspective? No. He's talking about God's perspective again. From God's eternal perspective, it's necessary that you go through what you're going through right now. And that's helpful to you to find that deeper source of joy in the midst of your grief. It's necessary to fulfill God's perfect will and plan for your life. A will and plan that you don't fully comprehend, that you don't understand, and you can't chart out. But from his perspective, he's in control, and what you're going through is necessary. We never, ever suffer for no good reason. And that's something to hold on to, even when you can't see the reason at all. You never suffer for no reason. God is in control, and God is good. Now, I admit that that's a very hard message when tragedy hits. When we think about huge natural disasters, hurricanes, earthquakes, I understand that's a hard message. But I also say to you, there is no source of comfort anywhere else except that even in those times, God is in control. There was a television show on TV many years ago called Touched by an Angel. Anybody ever see that show, Touched by an Angel? It was a cute little show. But it was based in some really bad theology. And what would happen, it had the same storyline every show. Somebody, some character would get into some deep trial, some real difficulty, and they would get to the point of wanting to give up. And 40 minutes after the hour, every show... 40 minutes after the hour, the angel would start to glow and she would give this same message, no matter what the situation was, no matter what the character was, she'd give the same message to the character 40 minutes after the hour every show. She would say, God didn't do this to you. God didn't want this to happen. God would never want anything like this to happen in your life. But he's given you and given all mankind free will and he can't intervene. But God loves you as you suffer. Now, there's a little bit of truth in there. God does love you as you suffer, and that's, that's part of the comfort we draw on. But there is no comfort in looking to a God who is out of control of the world when we're suffering. There is no comfort in crying out to a God who can't stop an earthquake, who can't stop any suffering that enters into our lives. The comfort is knowing that He is in control and that God is good, and yes, that He loves us. That's the comfort. As Romans 8 says, and please don't quote this to somebody who's in the midst of deep tragedy. 
But Romans 8 does say that God works everything together for good for those who He loves and those who love Him according to His purpose, to His plan. It's necessary to accomplish His good and perfect plan. That's why Joseph could say to his brothers, the brothers who had sold him into slavery, had led to him being put into prison for many years, who had basically destroyed his life, he could say to those same brothers, you meant evil against me, but God intended it for good. Because he understood this. It was necessary. Not only to accomplish God's plan for Joseph's life, but for the life of his people, the lives of his people, for his kingdom. It was necessary. The fourth truth that Peter points us to is that trials are tests. Our suffering are tests. He says, you rejoice though you have been grieved by various trials. And it's interesting, that word trials in the original language can be translated either tests or temptation. It could either mean test or temptation, and you determine which of those two meanings based on the context. And it really depends upon the intent of the person behind it. What's the difference between a terrorist and a physical therapist? It's not a joke. What's the difference between a terrorist and a physical therapist? A terrorist will torture you in order to take advantage of you and to harm you. A physical therapist will torture you in order to heal you and strengthen you. The point is their intent is entirely different. The intent is entirely different. Satan asked God's permission to torture and torment Job to within a a, a breadth of, of his life. And God allowed it. In God's perspective, it was necessary. Satan's intent was to bring Job to the point of disowning God and blaspheming God and cursing God and dying. That was Satan's intent in all the suffering that Job went through. But God is sovereign. God is in control over Satan himself. And God's intent was to strengthen Job's faith to strengthen Job so that Job could stand and say, even though he slay me, yet will I praise him. Peter knew all about this because Satan asked Jesus for permission to to torture and torment Peter in order to destroy him. And Jesus allowed it. Allowed Peter to go through that dark night of his soul when he denied three times that he knew Jesus Christ. Jesus allowed it, and he told Peter before it happened why he was allowing it. He says, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I am allowing this in order to strengthen you and prepare you to lead my church. So Jesus is risen. Life is short. God is in control. Tests. Trials, the trials, the sufferings we go through are tests. These are all statements of faith. These are all foundational to what we believe about the world, about God, about ourselves. 
They also can be just kind of bumper sticker theology and they can be greeting card spirituality if we're not careful. What makes these things take hold? What makes these things produce the joy that sustains us through grief? And that's what brings us to the final point that Peter makes, which is that faith is better than gold. All of this is intended to strengthen our faith. And faith is better than gold. Verse 7, you rejoice that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. It's interesting, in Isaiah 48.10, God says to his people, I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Affliction, suffering, trials, they're a crucible in which God allows the fiery trials to impact our lives to the point that we become refined in our faith. Peter's referring to that ancient process for refining gold where a goldsmith would melt down a gold nugget in the extreme heat of a crucible and after the gold was liquefied, the impurities would float to the surface. And once they're on the surface, then the goldsmith could easily scoop them off, skim them off the top, and what was left was, quote-unquote, pure gold. And what Peter is saying is that's why God allows you to walk through the flames of suffering and trials. He is causing the impurities of your lives, the pride, the materialism, the idolatry that's in your life. He's causing it. Nothing causes that to rise to the surface of your life quicker than trials and suffering. And once it's up there on the surface, then the Spirit of God can enable you to acknowledge it, confess it, repent of it, and be rid of it. That's why God allows the trials in our lives. And think about how valuable faith is. Faith is how we get true riches. You know, gold in and of itself, if I were to put a a big nugget of gold right here, it wouldn't be good for much except a paperweight by itself. But if I use it as currency, I can get all kinds of good things. And that's what faith is. Faith in and of itself is worthless. I get tired of Christians talking about faith like it's kind of like, you know, the, the force in Star Wars, you know. I can use my faith to gain all the things I want. It's a power that I can tap into to get all the good things I want in this life, in this world. That's not what faith is. Faith is useless by itself. Faith is only useful if it's connected to the one who's really valuable, which is the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why faith is so valuable, is it connects us to him. That's how we become truly rich. That's why James says over in James chapter 1, he says something very similar to what Peter's saying here in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Faith is what's so valuable, and it's suffering that produces a stronger faith. And then faith is also valuable because that's how we see Christ. In verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. You believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You know, Peter had seen Jesus physically. And he's talking to a whole bunch of people in northern Asia Minor that had never seen Jesus physically. But he's saying, don't worry about that. It's not physical proximity that makes us close to Christ. It's faith that makes us close to Christ. Why does faith make us close to Christ? Because faith is how we see Christ. We see Him by faith. We see His glory. We see His beauty. We see His value. We see 
who He is so that we can become like Him. So the stronger our faith, the closer we become to Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, that I may know Him and share in His sufferings, becoming like Him. By sharing in His sufferings, we become like Him. We draw close to Him. We know Him. Let me ask you, when do you draw closest to Christ in your life? Is it when you're happy, healthy, wealthy, life is easy, there's no problems, children are perfectly obedient, the boss loves you and gives you a big raise, you bring home a big bonus in your paycheck? Is that when you're really closest to Christ? Or is it when you're going through the river, the deep rivers and the fiery trials and the, the shaking of the earthquakes? I'd rather suffer and be close to Christ than not suffer and be far from Him. Believe me, I know that for some of you, these statements of faith sound like something that you'd see on a plaque in a Christian bookstore and therefore can something we can scoff at. You know, Jesus is risen, life is short, God is in control, trials are tests. But when you're suffering... That's no greeting card. That's no plaque on the wall. That's the anchor. That's what you hold on to. That's what gets you through. It's what the author of Hebrews calls a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Faith in a risen Christ who intercedes for us in heaven. That's how we rejoice even while we suffer. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for reminding us of these simple truths, truths that are foundational to our faith, truths that we recite in every confession of faith that we make, and yet, especially when life is easy and prosperous, we tend to forget. Lord, for anyone here this morning who's suffering, may they find comfort and strength and courage and the will to go on through these promises of your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.